Welcome to the Foundation Podcast, your weekly insight into the most significant conservative ideas being discussed right now all across America. From policymakers to grassroots activists, and from thought leaders to elected leaders, each week we bring you the people and the ideas shaping the American Republic. Brought to you with a dose of Texas, where Lone Star Liberty shines brighter than ever. Boy, it is always fun to listen to John Philip Sousa's The Stars and Stripes Forever. I hope you enjoyed that. You want to stay tuned to the entirety of the podcast today to listen to a little more of that. This is Kevin Roberts, your host of the Foundation Podcast. Those of you who are regular listeners know that we usually have guests on this podcast because we learn a lot more. I guess I should say I always learn a lot more by listening. In this case, this week, we figured we would talk about Independence Day, and because I happen to be someone who's studied a lot about American independence, I decided that we're going to focus on some speeches about Independence Day. And beyond that, if you're thinking you don't want to listen about speeches regarding Independence Day, perhaps you're driving around, you're talking to friends in your community, and you've been concerned that Americans don't really celebrate Independence Day anymore. We Go to July 4th parades, perhaps. We barbecue in the backyard. And each year when USA Today or Pew or some polling organization does some kind of public opinion poll, there is a steadily diminishing percentage of Americans who even know what July 4th is about. And so I've got this personal pledge that I've made, which is not to call the holiday July 4th. That's a date. The holiday is Independence Day. In fact, I enforce this at home so my four kids are required to do this. They're also required as a family to read the Declaration of Independence every Independence Day, not just because we're history nerds, but because I think that we have begun to lose significantly our spirit as American patriots. So if you are someone who follows the news, you're interested in policy and politics and philosophy and history, and I guess you might be because you are listening to this podcast, then this episode is for you. So what we're trying to do over the next half hour is reinvigorate among ourselves, our friends, our family members, that sense of patriotism, what we might call our, our, our shared heritage, this, this cultural inheritance we get, not just from 1776, but from a host of famous and not so famous Americans who have talked about, written about, sung about, Independence Day. So what we're going to do is really go down a, a walk of American history, starting with what happened on July 4th, 1776. And we're even going to play some snippets of some of the famous speeches in American history about the day. And one of the reasons I want to do that, in addition to simply enjoying being patriotic, even though that is politically incorrect, is to make sure that as Americans in the 21st century, we understand what our founders might have called our civic canon, that, that body of work, that body of, of speeches in this case, that informs what we are as Americans. And the reason I think we have to do this in informal ways, like a podcast or a radio show, is because we have nothing short of a crisis in civic education and in the teaching of American history in the United States today. 
here at the Texas Public Policy Foundation, we have adopted as one of our major priorities, not just here in Texas, but nationwide, the rejuvenation of teaching American history and civic education. And I could bore you to tears with statistic after statistic about how poor our civic education is today, but suffice it to say that it needs to be improved. In fact, a, a diminishing percentage of Americans who were born here in the United States can pass the US citizenship test. With that in mind, we're going to take initiative on our own accord in a very American way. This is going to be an individual effort. You don't have to sign up for a class, but maybe all you need to do is listen for the next while to these excerpts of speeches, a little bit of analysis for me, a little bit of framing historically so that you can enjoy what this civic canon about Independence Day offers us. And so in order to kind of set the table for what we are going to listen to, I, along the way, will give you some, some essays, maybe some books to think about reading. You know, that's one of the things we, we try to do here on the Foundation Podcast. When we have a guest, we often ask them, you know, what's your, your daily reading list? What are, what are books that have been formative for you? And I have mentioned the name of a historian a couple of times, Russell Kirk, K-I-R-K, if you're unfamiliar, who is connected to Hillsdale College. In fact, we'll have his biographer, Dr. Bradley Berzer on the podcast here in the next few weeks. And Kirk, among many ideas, and, and in addition to a couple of fantastic books that he wrote, penned an idea in one of those books that is known as The Five Great Cities. And, and the concept goes as this, and this is sort of the framing, this is the context for what we're going to talk about today. And this, I think, is really helpful for you if you're thinking about how you're going to celebrate Independence Day. Or for that matter, if you're listening to this podcast in September or October, how and why you can be appreciative of being an American. And in, in short, to be very brief about this, Russell Kirk said, just imagine in your mind's eye that you're in Philadelphia, July 4th, 1776. And what has happened, of course, is significant to say the least. This, this group of ragtag colonists from 13 colonies, some of them barely existing as civil societies, declared independence from those powerful empire in the world. What happened there, what allowed those 56 signers of the Declaration to have the courage to sign their name to that document was, of course, revolutionary. But it was the continuation of what their forebears in London in 1215 did when a group of aristocrats essentially forced the English king to sign this charter of their rights and in particular of his duties. And the reason they did that is because their forebears in ancient Rome in the 5th century, nearly 800 years prior, had also developed a, a system of administrative order. And their forebears from Athens, intellectual forebears at least, had nurtured this, what you and I would recognize as political philosophy, this, this sense that we can study what it means to be human, in essence, what it, what it means to be free. And that was made possible by their forebears intellectually, religiously, in Jerusalem, who several hundred years prior, of course, had established the concept that our law in civil society was God's law. And so the point that Kirk makes is that what happened in Philadelphia in 1776 was revolutionary. It was distinctly American in only ways that Americans could accomplish. But it could not have happened without the foundation that had been laid in England and Rome and Athens and in Jerusalem before. 
And so when I talk about this shared cultural inheritance, these, these concepts, this political philosophy, even this culture that's been handed down generation to generation since 1776, and presumably for, for many decades, if not centuries, from this point forward, I'm not just talking about what it means to be American, really talking about what it means to be a free person. That is, someone who understands that freedom is not merely the right to do whatever the heck we want to do, but the right to do what we ought. And so as George Washington put it, and as Russell Kirk wrote about a lot, this American concept of ordered liberty, of declaring independence from the greatest empire in the world, but also recognizing on the other hand, that there were duties that would be foisted on us as individuals and in particular on our political leaders is what America has, has done so well. Doesn't mean, of course, that we're perfect. We are a human enterprise, a human society. But it does mean that our ideals are noble, that our history has been filled with heroes and heroines, and that we're doing an exceedingly poor job in the 21st century, cultivating in our young people a real spirit a real love, a real passion for what it means to be an American. And so the first three speeches that I will mention are all from American presidents, names you recognize. John Kennedy in the 1960s, Woodrow Wilson in 1918, and Harry Truman in the 1950s. And does it matter that party affiliation comes into the picture here. They do all happen or did all happen to be Democrats. This is a nonpartisan show after all. But I think it's important to recognize that in the civil society of institutions, including political parties, that both major political parties in the 1910s, the 1950s, the 1960s were very interested in cultivating the spirit of, of pride, properly ordered pride in the American founding. And so here you'll listen to about five minutes of a speech that President Kennedy gave as one of his earliest speeches as president of the United States. As you may know, he was quite a scholar of history, quite a scholar of the American founding prior to becoming president, and had given a number of speeches about Independence Day and what it meant to be free and, of course, his own military experience. But in this speech, what's entitled his Fourth of July Address at Independence Hall, July 4th, 1962 in Philadelphia, you're going to hear Kennedy underscore one of the great truths of American Independence Day, and that is it's not just for Americans. The principles of the Declaration are not just for Americans, but for all peoples, even those who are not yet free. Enjoy. You and I, governors, both recognize how dependent we both are, one upon another, for the successful operation of our unique and happy form of government. Our system and our freedom permits the legislative to be pitted against the executive, the state against the federal government, the city against the countryside, the party against party, interest against interest, all in competition or in contention, one with another. Our task, your task in the State House, and my task in the White House, is to weave
from all these tangled threads a fabric of law and progress. Others may confine themselves to debate, discussion, and that ultimate luxury, free advice. Our responsibility is one of decision for the governors to choose. Thus, in a very real sense, you and I are the executives of the testament handed down by those who gathered in this historic hall 186 years ago today. For they gathered to affix their names to a document which was above all else, a document not of rhetoric, but of bold decision. It was, it is true, a document of protest, but protests had been made before. It set forth their grievances with eloquence, but such eloquence had been heard before. But what distinguished this paper from all the others was the final irrevocable decision that it took to assert the independence of free states in place of colonies and to commit to that goal their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor. Today, 186 years later, that declaration, whose yellowing parchment and fading, almost illegible lines I saw in the past week in the National Archives in Washington, is still a revolutionary document. To read it today is to hear a trumpet call for that declaration unleashed not merely a revolution against the British, but a revolution in human affairs. Its authors were highly conscious of its worldwide implications. And George Washington declared that liberty and self-government were, in his words, finally staked on the experiment entrusted to the hands of the American people. This prophecy has been borne out for 186 years, this doctrine of national independence has shaken the globe, and it remains the most powerful force anywhere in the world today. There are those struggling to eke out a bare existence in a barren land who have never heard of free enterprise, but who cherish the idea of independence. There are those who are grappling with overpowering problems of illiteracy and ill health and who are ill-equipped to hold free elections. But they are determined to hold fast to their national independence. Even those unwilling or unable to take part in any struggle between East and West are strongly on the side of their own national independence. If there is a single issue in the world which divides the world, it is independence. The independence of Berlin or Laos or Vietnam. The longing for independence behind the Iron Curtain. The peaceful transition to independence in those newly emerging areas whose troubles some hope to exploit. The theory of independence is as old as man himself and it was not invented in this hall. But it was in this hall that the theory became a practice. 
that the word went out to all in Thomas Jefferson's phrase that the God who gave us life gave us liberty at the same time. And And today this nation, conceived in a revolution, nurtured in liberty, maturing in independence, has no intention of abdicating its leadership in that worldwide movement for independence to any nation or society committed to systematic human oppression. Well, as President Kennedy said, what happened in Philadelphia in 1776 transcends time so that Americans nearly 200 years later, when he was giving that address, and of course Americans in the 21st century, continue to build upon the foundation of liberty, in particular ordered liberty, from the Declaration. But we also know that those principles transcend place as well. And in 1918, as several hundred thousand American soldiers were concluding their service in World War I in, in a very significant way. That is, if the United States hadn't gotten involved, the Allies may not have won that conflict. Woodrow Wilson, who should be criticized for some things he did and said, gave a particularly eloquent address about the motivation of America in getting involved in World War I. And listen to what he says. Again, this is 1918 President Woodrow Wilson. It is significant, significant of their own character and purpose and of the influences they were setting afoot, that George Washington and his associates, like the barons at Runnymede, spoke and acted not for a class, but for a people. It has been left for us to see to it that it shall be understood that they spoke and acted not for a single people only, but for all mankind. And of course, Wilson, who would go on to advocate for what would become the United Nations, understood that what we have the privileges of enjoying here in the United States, particularly this civil freedom, what is often described as individual rights, is something that many people in Europe and in other continents simply did not enjoy. And the person, the president, who really underscores that is Harry Truman, himself a World War I veteran, who many people said became president accidentally. Of course, there are very few accidents in life. Harry Truman ascended to the presidency, obviously, upon the death of Franklin Roosevelt near the end of World War II. And in 1952, reflecting upon his service, reflecting upon what it meant for the United States to have participated in World War II, this is what Truman says. This is a very special occasion. Here in Washington tonight, up in Philadelphia, and throughout our whole country, we are celebrating an anniversary of great importance. On this day, 175 years ago, the representatives of the American people declared the independence of the United States. Our forefathers in Philadelphia not only established a new nation, they established a nation based on a new idea. They said that all men were created equal. They based the whole idea of government on this God-given equality of men. They said that the people had the right to govern themselves. 
They said the purpose of government was to protect the unalienable rights of man to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I would encourage you to, to listen to or read the rest of that address, but it, it highlights a point that I want to make, and there's sort of two, two sides of this. The first is the application universally of the principles of the Declaration of Independence to all mankind. But secondly, you might say, in fact, many critics of the United States say, that at the time the Declaration of Independence was signed and endorsed, that there was a whole group of Americans who were not able to enjoy those freedoms, particularly enslaved people. The population of slaves in the United States at the timing of the Declaration being signed was just under one million. That population would double to two million by 1800. And because of the recent invention of the cotton gin by the eve of the Civil War, there were four million enslaved persons in the United States. And it is irrefutable whether you are a Democrat or a Republican, a liberal or a conservative, an American or someone who's not an American, that the principles endorsed in the Declaration of Independence were not applied by law and really even in social custom to those enslaved peoples. And often critics will take that fact and they will distort it to suggest that because of that, the Declaration of Independence, American Independence, American Independence Day are not worth celebrating. And I can tell you, having taught more than 10,000 students in my career, most of them early American history, that this problem of distorting American history, of, of revising American history, is profound. So it's, it's not to say that somehow slaves were able to enjoy freedom. That's, that's not the argument. The argument is that the principles that were articulated in the Declaration of Independence became the foundation from which ultimately those slaves would be freed. People are products of their age. They have all of the blinders that a particular era does. You and I do living in the 21st century. Our parents did or do, grandparents and great-great-grandparents. And I'll, I'll save the long explanation from this scholar of slavery and the scholar of race and say simply that had the Declaration of Independence not been signed, not been endorsed by the United States, that there would not have been that civic canon, if you will, that in the 1860s allowed slaves to be freed. And yes, of course, a civil war had to be fought. And yes, of course, there had to be constitutional amendments in the 1860s that freed the slaves and gave people of color the right to vote. And yes, of course, a hundred years later, Martin Luther King, as we will hear shortly, was still talking about discrimination and segregation. And yes, of course, even up to this moment, none of us are perfect. The point is that you will be hard pressed, and I give you this challenge as you're celebrating Independence Day this week, to find any other society in the history of the world that was willing to have a civil war over the issue of freeing slaves. And I understand as a, as a proud Southerner that there were other issues involved. If you take slavery out of the equation, however, you don't have a civil war. The civil war happens, constitutional amendments are ratified, and yes, it takes a century or more to eradicate at least most of those racial tensions. But here we are in 2018, some 250 years after the Declaration is signed, and we are a society, at least in terms of equality, of 
people of different racial and ethnic backgrounds getting along, building communities together that has made a tremendous amount of progress, NFL protests aside. That's the point, that the, the very beauty of the American Declaration of Independence was giving subsequent generations the tool with which they could fight that racial discrimination and inequality. And the person who really leads the charge is Frederick Douglass, the former slave who in the middle part of the 1800s spoke eloquently and often throughout the North. He became a leading abolitionist, as you probably know. And he gave two speeches, one in 1852 and one in 1862, that really highlighted the problem. And so my point as a, an old history teacher is not that we should run away from the truth. The truth is that the Declaration of Independence did not apply to slaves. It's that we should really peel that onion back further and understand what happened over time. And were it not for this document and heroes like Frederick Douglass and Abraham Lincoln and Martin Luther King, and for that matter, Harry Truman and John Kennedy, among others, we would not have the society that we do in the 21st century. And it is precisely that that's worth celebrating. And for those of us who consider ourselves conservatives, we not only ought not be ashamed of this history, we ought to celebrate it because these are the conservative notions of, of ordered liberty that have allowed this evolution, the social evolution to occur. Let me just highlight a couple of sentences in Frederick Douglass's speeches. And the reason I want to do this is not just to teach a little bit of history, but also to encourage the reading of Douglass because a lot of people simply have forgotten him. One of the problems that we run into with revisionist history, for example, in taking the college board's advanced placement U.S. history test and making sure that only 10% of the content is before 1900, is that we lose our understanding of what it means to be an American. And it doesn't matter where you're from, it doesn't matter how recently your family immigrated here, the whole concept of being an American is in part this pluralistic society in which we set aside our differences so that we can have civil interaction for civil society. Here's what Douglas said in 1852. He gave this speech at a July 4th gathering in Rochester, New York. What to the American slave is your 4th of July? I answer a day that reveals to him more than all other days in the year the gross injustice and cruelty to which he is the constant victim. That's irrefutable. There were 3.7 million slaves in the United States when Douglas made that comment. And the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, of course, had been written, the Constitution ratified, and what Douglas was doing as a freed slave was highlighting the inherent hypocrisy in that document. And in 1862, he expands upon that in this speech entitled The Slaveholders' Rebellion. So keep in mind, 1862, July 4th, the Civil War is about a year on. And once again, he's giving this address largely to a white audience, but printed in newspapers throughout the North. And especially this 1862 address would be read by an increasing number of African Americans. Here's Douglas again. Instead of treating the Declaration as it was intended to be treated, as a full and comprehensive declaration of the equal and sacred rights of mankind, our contemptible opponents have endeavored to turn it into absurdity 
by treating it as a declaration of the equality of man and his physical proportions and mental endowments. This gross and scandalous perversion of the true intensive meaning of the Declaration did not long stand alone. Some of my colleagues and I often cite this speech by Douglas to undermine the, the real poor intentions, I'm afraid, of the revisionist historians on the left who like to use Douglas as an example of why the Declaration is a bad idea. Read the 1862 speech. Douglas explains to you that he understands the, the real intent of the Declaration, which was to be applied universally. And yes, it was a tragedy, to say the least, that it had not been done so by 1862. But had it not existed as a political and social tool, we wouldn't have had the Civil War, and we would not have had the ending of American slavery. And of course, this leads us to the very natural progression in terms of history timeline of, of, of solving this discrepancy, this hypocrisy in the Declaration to the 100-year battle after the Civil War to establish equal rights under the law. And there are many heroes along the way, people who are white, people who are black, obviously Hispanics and people of other ethnic backgrounds. But the one person who stands out as the major voice for that effort, sort of bringing Douglas's efforts to fruition a hundred years later is Martin Luther King. I have found in my teaching of history and just talking to Americans in, in the contemporary era that most Americans know why Martin Luther King was famous. Most Americans understand he gave this really famous speech, I Have a Dream, and some of them know that he gave that in 1963 on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. What very few of them have done, too few of them I should say, however, is actually listen to the speech. And I find it, every time I listen to it, one of the most moving pieces of rhetoric that I have ever heard. The, the words on the page are moving. And so if all you can do is read the words, I encourage you to do that. If you're someone interested in excellent writing, especially in excellent rhetoric, you ought to study this speech. Uh, many, many, many speechwriters for both Democrats and Republicans, liberals and conservatives, have looked at all of the literary devices in the speech, and it's, it's truly brilliant. What's helpful about this speech historically is that especially when you see it in light of what we're discussing in today's episode, the Declaration of Independence, that it really is the culmination of decades, if not centuries of effort to make sure that what the Declaration says about equal rights being applied to all mankind is actually true. And so I'll cue up this first excerpt from the beginning of Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech, 1963 in April, on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. When the architects of our republic wrote the magnificent words of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, they were signing a promissory note to which every American was to fall heir. This note was a promise that all men, yes, black men as well as white men, would be guaranteed the unalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It is obvious today 
that America has defaulted on this promissory note insofar as her citizens of color are concerned. Instead of honoring this sacred obligation, America has given the Negro people a bad check, a check which has come back marked insufficient funds. But we refuse to believe that the Bank of Justice is bankrupt. We refuse to believe that there are insufficient funds in the great vaults of opportunity of this nation. And so we've come to cash this check, a check that will give us upon demand the riches of freedom and the security of justice. We have also come to this hallowed spot to remind America of the fierce urgency of now. This is no time to engage in the luxury of cooling off or to take the tranquilizing drug of gradualism. Now is the time to make real the promises of democracy. Now is the time to rise from the dark and desolate valley of segregation to the sunlit path of racial justice. Now is the time to lift our nation from the quicksands of racial injustice to the solid rock of brotherhood. Now is the time. Make justice a reality for all of God's children. Well, you heard an excellent excerpt from the, the beginning of King's I Have a Dream speech. And next, we'll listen to not the, the very end of the speech, but almost the very end, where he really brings together all of these threads that I've talked about regarding the Declaration of Independence, Frederick Douglass's efforts, and where America stood as a civil society in the 1960s. I really like the excerpt you're about to hear because I think it provides reason for hope. So even though we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners Will they be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood? I have a dream that one day even the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression, 
will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. And so, if you really enjoyed what you just heard, or maybe it's been a while since you've listened to King's I Have a Dream speech, I encourage you to listen to all of it. In the interest of your time, we wanted to be sure and just give you enough to wet your whistle. The point, though, folks, is the following, that we have too few Americans who, on July 4th this year, will celebrate the real meaning of American independence, and, and by doing so, they know that they're not saying that America is perfect. They know that there have been institutions such as slavery that are stains on our historical record. But they also know that we are, as, as Abraham Lincoln said, the last best hope for the world. We are a place where, of course, as humans, we are imperfect, which means our civil society is. But we have overcorrected in our history and civics classes for two generations emphasizing that point of imperfection. And so now we've gotten to the point where what we're expecting in terms of standardized tests and curriculum standards is not a real love for American heroes and heroines, but a, a disdain that we have begun to actively cultivate, especially in our college courses, but increasingly in our middle school and high school courses. And I was inspired to, to record this podcast, not because I want to spend a whole lot of time criticizing those who are justifiably criticized for their intentions in wanting to undermine America, but instead to give you the tools to hopefully rejuvenate yourself and you, the, the love that you have for the United States, and I'm hopeful share that as well. One of the best ways I can do that is point you to an excerpt from Ronald Reagan's first State of the Union. This is not his first inaugural. It's his first State of the Union, 1982. And in this three-minute excerpt, which is the conclusion of his first State of the Union, I think that you will walk away inspired for the rest of your lives to celebrate Independence Day as it ought to be celebrated. And then there are countless, quiet, everyday heroes of American life. Parents who sacrifice long and hard so their children will know a better life than they've known. Church and civic volunteers who help to feed, clothe, nurse, and teach the needy. Millions who have made our nation and our nation's destiny so very special. Unsung heroes who may not have realized their own dreams themselves, but then who reinvest those dreams in their children. Don't let anyone tell you that America's best days are behind her, that the American spirit has been vanquished. We've seen a triumph too often in our lives to stop believing in it now. A hundred and... A hundred and twenty years ago, the greatest of all our presidents, delivered his second State of the Union message in this chamber. We cannot escape history, Abraham Lincoln warned. We of this Congress and this administration will be remembered in spite of ourselves. 
The trial through which we pass will light us down in honor or dishonor to the latest generation. Well, that president and that Congress did not fail the American people. Together they weathered the storm and preserved the Union. Let it be said of us that we too did not fail. That we too worked together to bring America through difficult times. Let us so conduct ourselves that two centuries from now, another Congress and another president meeting in this chamber as we're meeting will speak of us with pride, saying that we met the test and preserved for them in their day the sacred flame of liberty, this last best hope of man on earth. God bless you and thank you. You listen to that and you realize there's a reason that we conservatives hold on to the spirit of Ronald Reagan, and it's because he really was one of the most profoundly effective communicators of American ideals we will ever hear. I hope you've enjoyed the, the excerpts you've listened to, the excerpts that, that I've read briefly. We have a list of, of all of those on our, our website. Of course, you can always contact me for additional information. I want to close, however, with excerpts from a speech of someone whose son is very famous. And this is an essay and a speech that Rush Limbaugh Jr., the father of the famous radio talk show host, put together. It's called Our Lives, Our Fortunes, Our Sacred Honor. I will leave it up to you to read this in its entirety. You can find it on the web. But to encourage you to do that, here are a few excerpts. It was a glorious morning. The sun was shining and the wind was from the southeast. Up especially early, a tall, bony, red-headed young Virginian found time to buy a new thermometer for which he paid three pounds, 15 shillings. He also bought gloves for Martha, his wife, who was ill at home. Thomas Jefferson arrived early at the state house. The moment the door was shut and it was always kept locked, the room became an oven. The tall windows were shut so that loud quarreling voices could not be heard by passers-by. Small openings atop the windows allowed a slight stir of air and also a large number of horseflies. Jefferson records that, quote, the horseflies were dexterous in finding necks and the silk of stocking was nothing to them. All discussion was punctuated by the slap of hands on necks. Folks, cutting back in, this is the scene of our founders debating, writing, and then signing the Declaration of Independence. And Limbaugh Jr. goes on to highlight a handful of these signers. I'll just mention three of them reading again directly from this essay. Robert Morris, Merchant Prince of Philadelphia, delegate and signer, met Washington's appeals for money year after year. He made and raised arms which made it possible for Washington to cross the Delaware at Trenton. In the process, he lost 150 ships at sea, bleeding his own fortune and credit almost dry. Thomas Nelson, signer of Virginia, was at the front in command of the Virginia military forces. With British General Charles Cornwallis in Yorktown, fire from 70 heavy American guns began to destroy Yorktown piece by piece. Lord Cornwallis and his staff moved their headquarters into Nelson's palatial home. While American cannonballs were making a shambles of the town, the house of Governor Nelson remained untouched. 
Nelson turned in rage to the American gunners and asked, Why do you spare my home? They replied, Sir, out of respect to you. Nelson cried, Give me the cannon, and fired on his magnificent home himself, smashing it to bits. But his sacrifice was not quite over. He had raised $2 million for the revolution by pledging his own estates. When the loans came due, a newer peacetime Congress refused to honor them, and Nelson's property was forfeited. He was never reimbursed and died impoverished a few years later at the age of 50. And finally, there is the New Jersey signer Abraham Clark. He gave two sons to the officer corps in the Revolutionary Army. They were captured and sent to that infamous British prison hulk afloat in New York Harbor known as the Hellship Jersey, where 11,000 American captives were to die. The younger Clarks were treated with a special brutality because of their father. One was put in solitary and given no food. With the end almost in sight and the war almost won, no one could have blamed Abraham Clark for acceding to the British request when they offered him his son's lives if he would recant and come out for the king and parliament. The utter despair in this man's heart, the anguish in his very soul, must reach out to each of us 200 years later with his answer, no. The 56 signers of the Declaration proved by their every deed that they made no idle boast when they composed the most magnificent certain line in history. And for the support of this Declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. My fellow Americans, thank you so much for listening to this episode. It is always a joy and a privilege to teach a little bit of history, especially about one of the most significant events in human history. Do yourself a favor, reread the Declaration this July 4th, enjoy barbecue and cookies and all of the other things that we as Americans ought to enjoy, but be sure that you mention that the date is not the reason we are celebrating the day. We are celebrating the day because of American independence and all of us, regardless of where we're from, which political party we support, whether we like our neighbor, what books we like to read, who our favorite sports teams are, share in this cultural heritage. And to deny that is to deny being an American. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Foundation Podcast, brought to you by the Texas Public Policy Foundation. Please don't forget to subscribe.